When Zeke was little, he had an imaginary friend. Zeke, I meant to tell you I was going to talk about this today. (laughs) Whatever you want for lunch, buddy. (laughs) Some of you may have had your own imaginary friends, or maybe your kids did, or you've had some sort of experience with people uh, who have had these imaginary friends. Zeke's imaginary friend was named Tummy. And you could find Zeke's imaginary friend, not surprisingly, at his tummy. So Tummy somehow had this relationship with him, and I I don't know how he came up with it. He said it one day, we asked a few questions, and then we just rolled with it, you know? Like, what else are you going to do? Now, the, the role of imaginary friends can vary greatly. Sometimes uh, they are playmates that venture with kids into the endless possibilities of imagination. Uh, other times, they may be a constant companion to kids who may feel lonely and need someone around. In Zeke's case, and I can't sugarcoat this, Tummy was a bad influence. <laughs> It's true. Tummy was a very bad influence. Uh, Many of the mistakes that Zeke made, especially the bigger ones, happened because Tummy had told him to do these things, whether it was not putting something away or not eating his food or not listening to something uh, we had told him to do. Tummy was behind all of it. And when you asked him why, why, Zeke, did you do this thing, he would get a very serious look on his face and say, well, Tummy told me I should do it. To which we then had the most absurd conversation. Well, if your tummy tells you to jump off a cliff, would you do that too? I'm glad that Tummy eventually moved on to the imaginary friend retirement home because Zeke might be running some sort of crime ring uh, at this point if Tummy still had its way. But it brings up somewhat of an interesting question, which is, Where does blame go when things go wrong? Uh, Now, this is a complex question that many of us have spent vast amounts trying to answer, excuse me, and in particular, trying not to come to one particular answer. In many cases, there is always someone or something else to blame, whether it's Weather, traffic, stupid drivers, health, being tired, other people's incompetency. That's a favorite one. These are just a few of the uncontrollable and unknown forces in our lives that take the brunt of the blame for so many of the things that happen in our lives. My computer stopped working. And I didn't know what to do once my computer stopped working. And that's why this thing is late. Now, sometimes we blame things that are people that are close to us, Uh, our family, spouses, kids, siblings, dogs, you know, whatever it is. I mean, one of the oldest excuses supposedly is my dog ate my homework, right? Which just shows our willingness to go to extremes to find people or things to blame. Although I'm looking at Charles and Secret, and I'm thinking your dog might actually eat all the homework. We love these people or these things, so we try to be subtle in our blame. But we must say that if they hadn't, then we wouldn't have 
right? It's the cause and effects. Uh, other times, we blame God or the forces of the universe. How many of you have ever thought or heard or said some form of, the universe is conspiring against me? That is our way of explaining not only, uh, well, let's put it this way, maybe not one big thing went wrong, but a bunch of small things went wrong right in a row, which makes it feel like the world or the universe is against you. And then when it gets down to blaming God, typically things are pretty bad when we blame God for whatever is going on. Now, sometimes, and it's not often given all of the factors around us, sometimes we are the ones to blame. Once we have run out every possible road to put the blame on some something or someone else sometimes we are the ones to blame now this week in our study of exodus it's a bit of a study in human behavior particularly in regards to who is to blame and what do we do when things don't really go the way we expect them to now, I don't know if you've ever really thought about this. You know, we talk a lot about, well, things don't go how you expect them to, but God and like, but when you think about when you've planned something or you're doing something and, and, and things don't go exactly how you want them to, what is the process that you immediately fall into? I mean, sometimes it might just be a simple process of frustration. Ugh, can't anything go right? Yeah? But we want to know, oftentimes, why is it that we are in this position we're in? That's why we run down all these roads. Well, if this had gone right, would this have been better? In the Exodus story, it is time to put the theoretical into practice. It is time for Moses and his brother-in-law Aaron to go and confront Pharaoh, which is no small deal. God called Moses, reassured Moses, gave Moses all that he needed, prepared the way for him, wanted to kill him, and Moses graciously, graciously accepted all of these things, except, of course, for the killing part, but his wife saved him, so we're all good. Moses has already come the first, overcome the first really two difficult hurdles. He... He took this commission from God and got on the way and successfully made it past the murder attempt and all those other sorts of things. He went and he met Aaron, and Aaron heard all the things that God had said and agreed to go along with him and to be his mouthpiece. He went to the Hebrew elders, and they all got right on board with this, mes this message that God has heard the cries of his people, and he wants to redeem them. He wants to restore them, and, and all the people fell down, and they worshiped God in that place. The pump is primed. The people are ready. Let's get some deliverance up in here. There's one problem. Pharaoh is a different animal altogether. And as smoothly, really, as things have gone to this point of him going back to his people and getting them on board, what's going to happen when he goes to this person who is the king of this, at least this area, if not the world at the time. That's just a, just a title I'm putting on him. 
What's going to happen when they go and say, God wants you to let his people leave? So I call this part one, uh, who do you think you are? Let's pick it up in Exodus chapter 5, verses 1 through 2. So uh, they had gone, they'd spoken to the people, the people agreed, they all worshipped. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Now, given our history with the leaders of Egypt, it's a little bit challenging for us to view any of them, any of these pharaohs, as a sympathetic character. And the way the story is told, we are not supposed to view them as a sympathetic character, which makes it all the more difficult, because we know the story and how it goes, for us to look at these short phrases and realize that Pharaoh was right. Feels wrong to say, I know. But Pharaoh was right. There's a, there's a lot to consider in these two short verses. Moses and Aaron got this audience with Pharaoh. How did they do that? Is there a sign-up sheet in the lobby to go meet with Pharaoh? We don't know. None of that is explained. And then we look at the statement itself. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. What kind of a statement is it? Is it a request? It's a demand. The God of Israel says that you are to let his people go into the wilderness for this festival, which we know is to be a time of worship. Pharaoh is to let them go. Now, is Pharaoh accustomed to being told what to do by his slaves? Because they are there representing whom? The Hebrew people, who are the slaves of Egypt. Has any slave ever walked up to Pharaoh and said, you are going to do this because God told me to tell you that you're going to do this. Now, part of what is going to help us understand a little bit of Pharaoh's uh, point of view is, is to talk about who he is. Now, now Pharaoh was a title, uh, and some of the Pharaohs throughout the Old Testament are named, and others are not. Uh, the Pharaoh that we are dealing with specifically uh, in the Exodus part of the story is not named So uh, throughout scholarship, he has been called, uh, really creatively, the Pharaoh of the Exodus. And um, he's often identified by biblical scholars as either Ramesses II or, somewhat less likely, his son. But we have to remember that the oppression did not start with this Pharaoh. This Pharaoh has inherited this oppressive system, and he is simply carrying it out as he has always known it to be. He was born into this. He was also considered, yes, king, but to be a god amongst his people. He was the embodiment of the royal falcon god Horus 
And from at least the fifth dynasty on, he was looked upon as the son of the sun god, Ra. So he is considered to be by his people a living God on earth. And if you are considered by your people to be a living God on earth, what do you do? Whatever you want to do. Whatever you want to do. They believe that when the Pharaoh died, he became the god Osiris and joined the other divinities in the afterworld. So theoretically, all of the land of Egypt and everything around it belonged to this one person. And whatever he said was law. So Pharaoh was a big deal. And look, I don't care who you are. It doesn't matter who you are. So don't get caught up in the fact that it's Moses and Aaron. Nobody walks up to this man and tells him what to do. Unless they have been put into an advisory role by that person who will then solicit their advice. That's it. That's how you get to inform what this person does. So when they come and they say the God of the Israelite people wants you, not wants you, demands that you let them go, what is his response? Look at it. Who is the Lord? the God of Israel. Who is this God? Now, this is a very reasonable question from Pharaoh because what does he know about this God? Nothing. We've talked about how the Hebrew people probably knew less about him than we thought they did. Well, if they knew less about God than we thought they did, what does Pharaoh know about this God that they don't know as much? You know, it just keeps going. In fact, this is most likely the first time he has heard any reference to that God having any authority at all within the world. So his question is what? Oh, your God says I have to do something. Cool. Who is this again? Why should I do this? This question, who is God, is going to ring out through the Exodus story. And something to keep in mind is that the Egyptians have kept the Israelites of slave for how, for how long? How long have they been slaves in Egypt? Generations. What has Pharaoh seen or heard about this God doing to stop that slavery? Nothing. So does this God have authority over him as far as he is concerned? No. So then by extension, if this God has no authority over him and he doesn't know who this God is or whether this God is even real, who is coming to him and telling him that he has to do this thing? It's not the God of the Israelites. It's the Israelites who are his slaves. The people are. And Pharaoh reasons, as we're going to see, why are you asking for these days off? You're slaves. You want to stop working? You think that this is how this goes? So, forever, however, for our purposes, in asking this question, though Pharaoh doesn't know it yet because he's 
you know, he's leaning towards. We'll see how the Israelites are responsible with this. With this question, Pharaoh has set the stage for the rest of the Exodus story by the time the people leave Egypt. Who is this conflict between? It's between God, the real God, and Pharaoh, the one who claims to be the real God. So when we look at it that way, there is a huge question that rises from this. God is telling his people to go and worship in the wilderness. Pharaoh is telling them decidedly no. Who will they serve? Will they serve God or will they serve Pharaoh? But if we look at this as an episode of the blame game, right? This is brought before uh, Pharaoh, and Pharaoh immediately recognizes who is to blame, which is whom? It's the people. It's the people that these men represent. They are the ones to blame, which takes us to part two. Pharaoh's response to this request to leave and worship a different God, he answers the question of can they do that or not, but he also answers the question in his mind as to who these people will serve. And who does Pharaoh say they will serve? They will serve him. And they will like it. From Exodus chapter 5, verses 3 through 18. Long section here, so make sure you uh, bookmark this in your Bible or phone or iPad or wherever you are, because we're going to be in different parts of this. Then they said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Then Pharaoh said, look, the people of the land are now numerous, and you are stopping them from working. That same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they are crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. Then the slave drivers and the overseers went out and said to the people, this is what Pharaoh says, I will not give you any more straw. Go and get your own straw wherever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced at all. So the people scattered all over Egypt to gather stubble to use for straw. The slave drivers kept pressing them, saying, Complete the work required of you for each day, just as when you had straw. And Pharaoh's slave drivers beat the Israelite overseers they had appointed, demanding, Why haven't you met your quota of bricks yesterday or today as before? Then the Israelite overseers went and appealed to Pharaoh, Why have you treated your servants this way? Your servants are given no straw, yet we are told, Make bricks. Your servants are being beaten, but the fault is with your own people. Pharaoh said, lazy. That's what you are. 
lazy. That is why you keep saying, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Now get to work. You will not be given any straw, yet you must produce your full quota of bricks. All right, there's a lot here. I want us to first just very briefly look at what Moses and Aaron say at the beginning of this passage. They said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifices, or he may strike us with plagues or with the sword. So something that's just kind of funny as a side note, they changed their tone, right? Would you let us do this? And they add something that's not entirely accurate. If we don't do this, then what will God do? God will hit us with plagues and the sword. And then, and it's kind of a weird backdoor argument given what they've already said, and then you will effectively, Pharaoh, lose who? Your slaves. So you really should do this so that your slave people don't, you know, die. Now, is that really what's going on? No. So what did, Pharaoh, or what did Moses and Aaron realize from verse 1? that they now try to implement in verse 3. Uh-oh. He's not taking the God card. Okay, let's play the dead slave card. You got it. But Pharaoh is not going to let them go. He will not let his slaves go and worship God. This is not going to happen. And I don't... This is something I never really considered here before, but... What Pharaoh does throughout this section is actually brilliant. We immediately look at it as cruel, because it is. We look at it as unfair. Why? Because it is. But what we are missing when we simply look at it as those two things without any sort of reason, we're missing what Pharaoh is effectively doing to God's people. So we need to appreciate for a moment, I know that's a weird thing to say, again, we need to appreciate for a moment that what he does here is so effective, it immediately changes the course of how the narrative is going. He cannot give in to the demands of his slaves, right? That's just not how the system works. The power structure doesn't allow it. But there is a more, another more important factor. Pharaoh cannot let these slaves go even for three days because of what it would do to the Egyptian economy. If all of the workers left in mass, even for three days, what would happen to the Egyptian way of life? Come to a screeching halt. I think that noise probably sounded really good online. You're welcome. <clears throat> it would come to a screeching halt. The economy was dependent upon them doing their work. So he can't let this happen. He can't let them go. He has to keep them there. So in response to the entire scenario, Pharaoh, Pharaoh that was scenario and Pharaoh, uh, Pharaoh ordered that they make as many bricks as they're supposed to. Nothing crazy about that, but they're going to make it without the straw, which they were supplied with. Straw was harvested and stored and then brought out for them to use in all of these building projects. The straw is what holds the bricks together 
and what allowed them to structure them and make them in whatever shape they needed them to be. It's what, it's what all the mud and clay and stuff held on to so that these bricks could be made and made in an efficient way. It is nearly impossible <clears throat> to make bricks at the level they are supposed to without straw. They know this. Pharaoh knows this. So what are they forced to do in response to not getting straw? And we don't appreciate this, but I showed you a map a couple weeks ago of how big the entire area was. The narrator says that they had to scour what area? All of Egypt to find straw scraps. Not even real straw. The scraps are what have left behind. They then have to transport all of that back to wherever it is they're working and then make all these bricks with these things that they don't have. <clears throat> now, what can the Hebrew people do about this? Nothing. Why? They are at the bottom, folks. They're at the bottom. They don't have any rights. This is, an imp this is an oppressive system. And so as we read this story and as it goes, we're drawn into the sense of helplessness that they have against this machine that needs them to operate. And this Pharaoh has only known life oppressing these people. They are not really even people to him. They are simply a means to an end which is why he is able to be so cruel with them over and over and over again. He does not care about them other than what they can provide to his nation. Therefore, any question, petition, or demand, they are dismissed immediately because these people don't have any right to ask something from Pharaoh and any sign that these people are starting to raise a resistance, what does the oppressor need to do? Oppress <laughs> with a capital O, right? Needs to put them in their place so that what happens? Why can he not let them come up for air? Because if they do and he starts letting them come up for air, what do they start thinking? I kind of like having this air to breathe. I think I want more air. Hey, how many of us are there? How many of them are there? He cannot let it happen. But there's another something happening, which quite honestly, when I, when I saw this, I was like, oh, that makes so much sense. The oppressed have to learn that their well-being depends exclusively on Pharaoh's goodwill. You have what you have because I gave it to you. Not because you earned it. I did that. Out of the goodness of my heart. So don't mess with the system. Because you think you don't have much right now? Wait. Wait. Because you don't appreciate what I've done for you. So let's see how you like it when I change things up. And how do they like it when he changes things up? They don't like it at all. Why does he do it in that way? Because he wants them to blame someone. 
but it's not him. Who's to blame? Who told you to, to do this? Well, Moses and Aaron did. All right. So this is my fault because you listened to the advice of these two idiots? No. And now I'm taking this away from you because you have shown you don't appreciate me and what I've done. Now, here's why I said before, that's brilliant. They have no power within the system. The only person that can give them anything is Pharaoh. Pharaoh has turned the tables on them and removed more. And it's more than just him being cruel. He wants them to believe that he is the good guy who is being victimized by them. And that these other people who are telling them they can have a different and better life those people are lying to them. And if they continue to listen to these people, the only thing that's going to happen is their life's going to get worse. Okay, here's what this helps us understand, which we're not there yet, I know, but when the people have left Egypt and they're in the wilderness and something goes wrong, what do they say? Why have you taken us from Egypt? Where we had homes and food and water and all these things. Why, Moses, why, God, did you bring us out into this desolate wilderness where our lives are so awful? Remember how Pharaoh took care of us? No, seriously. That's what happens. So what he does in this section is crucial to the entire narrative of the Exodus. They have been slaves for so long without any rights for so long, dependent on Pharaoh's kindness for so long that they cannot believe there is something better outside of that. And they are fools for having listened to Moses and Aaron. So how do we know that this is the case? Well, one side note. It talks about the foreman. So in Egypt, they did a lot like what Rome did. So they had this the Egyptian overseers of the slaves, but they would appoint Hebrew people to oversee, you know, different areas or sections of work. So these overseers that are working for the Egyptians, but are the middlemen between the Egyptians and the Hebrews, they're getting beaten because the people cannot keep up with the impossible demand of making these bricks without straw. And then they're passing on whatever punishment they can. So it was these people who next go to plead with Pharaoh and who, or who went to plead with Pharaoh and then next approach Moses and Aaron. So who is to blame? Well, it looks like it's Pharaoh, but it's not really Pharaoh because blame has to fall on those who put you in this position, which takes us to part three. What have you done to us? The Israelite overseers uh, from, I'm sorry, chapter 5, verses 19 through 21 the Israelite overseers realized they were in trouble when they were told you are not to reduce the number of bricks required of you for each day. I would have thought they knew they were in trouble before that, but apparently this really drove the point home. When they left Pharaoh, they found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them, and they said, this is interesting, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. So... <laughs> 
Pharaoh did his job really well, really well. And there are a lot of things that stick out to us in this passage, but that word obnoxious kind of jumps out, right? Like, how many times do we read the word obnoxious in the Bible? You know, it's not there very often. But, but think again about the scenario, right? They're making bricks. These things have been taken away from them. The quota is still the same. They are working so much harder than they had to before. And look at their assessment of what's going on. We have become obnoxious. Let me ask you something. When someone around you is obnoxious, is that your fault or is it their fault? You guys are thinking about this pretty hard. Uh, (laughs) It's interesting that they have put themselves into the position of having transgressed against Pharaoh. We are now obnoxious to them. So they're already, they've bought into Pharaoh's narrative 100%. And they now see themselves as part of the problem, but they're not really the problem. Uh, And it's easy for us to be critical about what these people are saying here. Why don't they trust God? Why don't they understand what God is going to do? Why don't they do all these things? Well, I, I don't... This might come as a surprise to you, but Exodus chapter 6 through the rest of the Exodus story hasn't actually happened yet. I know. We're in five, but six hasn't happened yet, which again means what do the Israelites know about God's ability to overcome this problem? In fact, the moment this God showed up with Moses and Aaron, things have only gotten worse. They have been slaves for a really long time. Their lives have been difficult to an extreme. Now their lives are more difficult. And you know, they fell down on their knees to worship God just a few days ago. And now they are on their knees again, scraping up bits of straw. God has only made their life more difficult. So they approach Moses and Aaron, because remember, Pharaoh has told them Moses and Aaron are one, the ones to blame. And in a twist of irony we never could have seen coming, they said, may God judge you for what you have done. The God that sent them, may he judge you for coming to us and telling us that we are going to be delivered from slavery. Woe to you. They don't blame God. They blame Moses and Aaron. You have done this to us, which takes us to part four. What is taking so long? You ask that every Sunday when I'm preaching. So let's just transition those feelings onto here from verses 22 through 23. Moses returned to the Lord and said, (laughs) so you see the trickle down, right? You see it happening? Moses returned to the Lord and said, why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on his people, this people, I should say, and you have not rescued your people at all. All right. What did Moses think was going to happen when he walked into Pharaoh's throne room and said, God says you need to let these people go? What did he think was going to happen? 
he thought that God was going to work this out. What has God worked out so far? Nothing. In fact, the people's lives are harder. They're being manipulated by their slave master. They are now angry with Moses and Aaron. And all Moses did, all Moses did, was what God told him to do. You told me to do this. And you promised that this was going to happen. And guess what? People hate me even more now. Even more than they did before. Because they think I'm the one to blame. What's the deal? Why is this happening? Why haven't you done anything yet? His question here, again, is reasonable. It's not the way God is doing things, but is that expectation completely out of the blue? No. He thought he was here to represent God's mighty hand. So where is the mighty hand? Why are things just getting worse? And we have to remember that Moses is only doing this because God wouldn't let him say no. He doesn't want to be there. And he does not want to be in this position. And all of his insecurities about how he's not good enough, how he's not worthy enough, how he's not smart enough, all these things are rising right back up to the surface. I needed your help. And what have you given me? Oh, my staff can turn into a snake. Woo! We're failing at this. How do we know that it was so personal to Moses? We know because after God responds in chapter 6, and verse 12 of chapter 6, Moses says, If the Israelites will not listen to me, why would Pharaoh listen to me since I speak with faltering lips? All the insecurities are back. Whatever he was able to put away, they're all back. And he, the only thing he's thinking here is, you didn't show up, so it must, is it me? Like, what's, what's happening here? And he is genuinely confused. Which leads us to part five, which is God's response. And if you look throughout Scripture, there are some phrases that show up over and over again. Uh, sometimes in the Psalms, sometimes in the prophets. But there is one phrase that is one of my favorite phrases from the Bible is, you know, they will go through and they'll recognize all these things that, that are happening and how God is moving in the world. And they will conclude those thoughts with this phrase, God has done this. They will list all these amazing and wonderful and mighty things and they will end these thoughts with, God has done this. As if to say, we had no idea what he was going to do. But the trees shook. The mountains split. Angels appeared. Our enemies were vanquished. And God has done this. Not us. Not anything else in the world. It is him. So what is God's answer to all of this stuff? An angry God, a discouraged 
beaten down, manipulated people. A leader who doesn't trust himself, let alone God. Who's to blame when so much has gone wrong in so little time? Let's pick it up in verse 6, 1 through 11. And what's so interesting about this is that God has dealt with Moses before. And what we see here is that he doesn't get angry or push back. Instead, he speaks, he speaks to Moses, I, I get why you're confused, but here's what's going to happen. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. God also said to Moses, I am the Lord. I appear to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty. But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself fully known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. And then, this is important, then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians, and I will bring you to the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement and harsh labor. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the Israelites go out of his country. God does something really important in this section. Okay? And that is, he doesn't get all caught up in being gaudy. Instead, he recognizes through all of this mess of blame and trickling things down, he recognizes what's really hurting Moses and the Hebrew people. It's the fact that they don't know him. And they don't know. They don't know that God is about to show who the real God is. Oh, you think taking away straw from you is something big. He's about to show them. But God makes some important statements here. They don't know yet. When will they know? when they see God stretch out his mighty hand and show them what power really is. When he shows them what it means to be a God. And who's going to learn this lesson that he is the real God? Everyone. Everyone. He is the God 
of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob. He is the God who called them out and made a covenant with them. He is the God who promised them the land of Canaan and everything within it. He is the God of their ancestors. But from this point forward, he is also their God. He is their God. And they will know that no God can stand against him. Some things I want us to remember. Number one, we don't know the specific plans of God or how things are exactly going to work out. Number two, we don't know how long it's going to take for God to put his plan into action, which is especially hard for us since we don't always know what his plan is. But what we always have is a promise. We have this promise that God has been with us that God has moved, that God has made promises, that God has made a covenant. And however far and distant those things may be in the moment we are in right now, God is going to show us that he is our God. And somewhere down the road, we're going to look back to this place and say, that is the point when God moved that's it and it is by no accident friends that god waited for pharaoh to show how important he is how great he is how much power he has over them to step into the story in the way that he will to say is that all you have because I am not like you. You claim to be God. I am God. We have to remember that on the other side of some of our hardest times, there is redemption and restoration, even though we don't always know how that's going to happen. And it might feel like we're going to be making bricks forever. And it might feel like it just gets more and more unfair. But God hears the cries of his people, and he will move on their behalf, which reminds us of maybe the most important touchstone for us today. We would not know the wonderful redemption and restoration that we find in Jesus if we did not first know that we needed to be redeemed and restored. And lucky for us, we have a God who specializes in just those things.